Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5 with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Quick update before we get started today. So if you haven't noticed, where have you been? We've been talking about body image a lot the past month with our incredible guests, and we know that this isn't a light or easy topic to work through, so we wanted you to know that we are here for you along the journey, and not just as your podcast hosts. So instead of having a sponsor this month, we wanted to talk about an amazing body image-specific resource that we have created for you and for our clients. The Body Image Audit is a curated course taking key concepts that we're talking about on the show and tells you exactly how to apply these skills to build body image resilience and body neutrality into your everyday life. We know that this journey takes time to work through, so why not invest in something that you can always go back to, like a toolbox in your back pocket to shut that inner mean girl up whenever she comes out. And honestly, what better time to work on your body image when we are in the middle of what could be the most body image struggle time of the year. Not only is it beach body and swimsuit season, but um, talk about that meeting the end of quarantine and all of the things that go along with that. So if there was ever a time to invest in understanding the root cause of your body image and how to actually get out of the negative body image spiral, now is the time. We'll show you exactly how in the body image audit. Check it out at bit.ly forward slash the body image audit. Link will be in the show notes. On today's episode of Wholehearted Eating, we're chatting with Reagan Chaston, a speaker, writer, and thought leader in the fields of body image, health at every size, fitness, corporate wellness, and weight stigma. She is the author of the blog danceswithfat.org, the book Fat, the Owner's Manual, editor of the Prager Anthology, The Politics of Size, and the co-founder of the Fat Fatties Forum and Fat Activism Conference. Reagan is frequently featured as an expert in radio, television, and print in the documentaries Fatitude, America the Beautiful 2, A Stage for Size, and the PBS independent lens short Reagan's More Cabaret. She's an A-certified health coach, three-time national champion dancer, and two-time marathoner who holds the Guinness World Record for the heaviest woman to complete a marathon. She lives in Los Angeles and is training for her first and only Iron Distance Triathlon. We're honored to have her on today's episode. I will get us started today. Well, before we get started, everyone, Christina's in her mother-in-law's closet. (laughs) And her husband, Casey, wanted you all to know that she's currently recording from her mother-in-law's closet. But we have Reagan on the podcast today, and we're super excited to have you. So we would love if you could get started by, for anybody who doesn't know you, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you started your blog and doing what you do. Sure. So hi, I'm super excited to be here. I am a fat activist. I speak and write full time and have for the past like almost nine years. Um, And then as a hobby, I like to do fitnessy things. Uh, And so I got started actually because of that. I was I was ballroom dancing competitively. And I had been like in diet culture my whole life really, you know, heavily and had developed even an eating disorder between uh, high school and college and had recovered from that. But luckily never had a full blown relapse as doctors continue to prescribe weight loss as if it were like an appropriate thing for me. And so I started ballroom dancing and it all happened really fast. And I don't know like why, but I honestly thought that it would be about my dancing when I got to these competitions. And I will say I was, I had already gotten to a health at every size practice on my own. I didn't realize there was like this flourishing community or anything, but what I had done in, in college, my focus was on research methods and statistics. And so I decided I was going to do my own literature review and find the best diet, right? I was going to find the diet that worked the most based on the research. And that's what I was going to do. And so went through all the studies, was so completely shocked. I went through them all again. And I'm like, I'm doing the calculations by hand. I'm thinking I must've missed something. Cause what I found was there wasn't a single study where more than a tiny fraction of people were actually successful um, at intentional weight loss. And so as a lifelong fan of math and logic, 
I was like, well, obviously this isn't like an appropriate thing to do. Like this isn't going to work for me. And so I had kind of come to a, a focus on health at every size from like a non-diet perspective, but I was still in a place of like, okay, well, I've got to like figure out you know, this other stuff. And I'm, he still wasn't great with my body size and, you know, it was still like figuring that piece out. Um, and so I started ballroom dancing and I had danced all my life. And so I kind of became like a crowd favorite just because I was really comfortable on the floor. And a lot of people in there, like when you're a newcomer, you just look like you're really trying not to be sick from the nerves and from, you know, counting choreography out loud and stuff, which is totally reasonable. And so I like had this great reaction from the crowd and then judges would say things to me like, I mean, you're going to lose weight, right? What a waste of talent at your size. Or, you know, I just can't feel, I don't feel like I can give you a higher score until you lose weight. Cause you're just not going to be a good role model, that kind of thing. And then after this competition, I was sick. I danced not great. And I just, I grabbed, you have all this crap, like gowns and shoes and makeup. So I grabbed that all. I'm just trying to get back up to my hotel room. And I turn and this judge is like charging at me. And she kind of like backs me up against the elevator. And she's like, we need to talk about your waltz. And I was like, yeah, it wasn't a good day. And she's like, no, that dress. And I was like, oh, because I had just gotten this new gown and it was this beautiful like um, velvet gown with embroidery and it was gorgeous and had spaghetti straps. And she said, um, I couldn't stand to look at you. And I had that moment, right, where you're like, do I be like, quote unquote, classy or do I go off on this person? And I was sick and I was exhausted because I had just danced. And so I said, OK. And she said, I mean, I couldn't stand to look at you. And I said, OK. And she said it like two more times. And then she put her finger on my face and she was like, you have no business wearing spaghetti straps. And it was this revelation moment where I was like, bing, this has nothing to do with me. Right. Nobody gets this worked up over spaghetti straps. I don't care how last season that dress was. So like this is her like trying to give me her issues. And like that year, I think I wanted a wee for Christmas. So I was like, I'll pass on your body image issues. And so um, she said, you know, I talked to your coach and he said I could talk to you about this. And I was like, well, like I'm an adult. You don't have to ask for permission to talk to me. And I said, you know, in truth, I probably won't choose to change the dress, but I appreciate you taking the time to tell me it's such a problem for you. Right. Because I was living in Texas at the time. It's a very Southern response. Right. And her face got super red. And I legitimately thought she was going to swing at me for a second. Like, I was like, should I drop all my stuff? Like, how about we? And she just like turned around and walked away. And so it was in this moment. Now, I had done, I had been doing social justice work. Literally, my first protest was in kindergarten. And so I had done a ton of um, queer and trans activism, anti-racism work in college, but I never thought of fat people as this group of people who were being oppressed. Right. I thought of it as like a personal thing. Like I have to learn how to be okay with my body, I guess. And so in that moment, I was like, oh, like I just, I wanted to be a fat dancer, but I'm going to have to be a fat activist to get this done. And so that is where I started Dances with Fat, just to kind of talk about life as a fat dancer. And again, I had no idea there was this thriving community, right? Leading to ridiculous posts when you read back where like I somehow thought I was coming up with this for the first time or like, you know, no one else is thinking about this, which is ridiculous. People have been doing this work since before I was born. Um, but yeah, so that was sort of the impetus for it. And then it's just grown since then. What an incredible story. And as a former dancer and also like a dancer at heart, um, that community is the most toxic community. And it is like, there is this, this like perception of, of having a, a right to to tell people about their body and talk about their body in the dance community and to formally judge them based on their body size and on their their markings right when you're because I was a comp I was a competition dancer not ballroom dancing but comp competition dancing and people talked about our bodies all the time and it's just it's just disgusting like the way that they handle it and it's so toxic for anybody to be in to the point where sometimes I think to myself I have a young daughter like do I really want her going into dance, you know, and how do I protect them from that? But, um, I love that story. And I love how you felt, how you said, how you stumbled into the idea of, of, um, of fat activism. 
as something that you just kind of stumbled into and uh, didn't realize that people have been doing this work for, for so long. And isn't that kind of nice though? Like it's, it kind of feels like, wow, you know, I'm having this independent personal experience and I'm feeling this way. And then you stumble into these people and you find out, oh my gosh, they've been here all along and they've been supporting this for so long. So it's not just something that I feel, it's something that everybody feels. And now I'm part of a community. And I think that can feel, um, really special, you know, um, something that you, that you said in your, I don't remember where we saw this, maybe on your blog, but you said, I keep blogging because there are people who hate themselves and their bodies because they don't think that they have any other choice. And because there are people who diet only because they think that's the only way to pursue health and happiness. And I'd love for you to talk about how, how you've pursued health and happiness and continued to dance. Um, given everything that you've kind of went through in your story, how did that end up happening and how did you, how have you found that happiness? Sure. Yeah. My work is really very much about providing people options. I take a pretty extreme view of body autonomy. I think people can do what they want with their bodies. I want them to have information. I want them to know their options right? Which was what I didn't know. Like I had no idea that there were options for supporting my health outside of diet culture. And so for me, blogging and then eventually speaking and writing wider about that has been a big part of that, right? It's one of those things where as you are teaching something, you're reinforcing it for yourself as well. And so that's been like a huge way that I do it. And then just in my own life, just continuing to peel back the like layers of onion or parfait, if you prefer, of diet culture and realizing, learning to realize like, oh no, that is fat phobia that I internalized. Like I've been shopping at Crap Mart and it's time to make some returns again. And it's, it's a process that goes forever because we're so surrounded by these constant uh, messages. So it's really easy. It's not like a galloping shock if we've internalized fat phobia and it's really, you know, easy to do. Um, so it's been, that's been a big piece of it. And um, just deciding, you know, there, I think Kate Harding is who I first read about that idea of the fantasy of being thin. And that was kind of what I was coming to the realization of like, I'm going to have to give up on these plans I had where once I'm thin, I'm going to do all these things right? My list of things. And I was like, instead of like sitting around and waiting for a thin body to show up, because as we've learned, that's probably not happening. What if I just put, took my fat body out for a spin? Like see what it can do. And what if I, you know, got to a place where I defended my body and believed in it. And so that kind of was a process. I couldn't figure out what to do. I decided I wanted to love my body, but I had no idea where to start. And so I was like sitting in a car having just quit my last diet program in the most ridiculous way possible and was like, okay, like, what am I going to do? And I realized like I had, had spent so much time hating my body for not looking like a Photoshop picture of somebody else that I hadn't had like a second's worth of gratitude for what my body did. So I made this list of literally everything I could think of my body did for me and like granularly, like breathing, blinking, waste management, heartbeat, like everything. And then I started to try to interrupt negative thoughts about my body and replace it with gratitude for anything from the list, right? Oh, I hate this body, but like, nah, thanks for breathing. You're doing a great job killing that. And it sounds hokey. It probably is hokey, but it fundamentally changed my relationship with my body to where I was like, we're a team. And like, I would not allow anyone to talk about my best friend, the way that I've allowed people and the way that I personally have talked about my body. And so that's, that's, as we say in the South, fixing to stop. And then from there, I just kept kind of growing that, like being able to see, I think it helped to come from an activism background. Cause once I had that realization of like, oh no, this is a group of people who are being oppressed. I could start to see it like, oh, here are the structures and here's the systemic oppression. And like, of course I deserve a seat on a plane that accommodates me just like all the thin people get. Of course I deserve healthcare that focuses on my health and isn't obsessed with my body size. Like, of course these things should be happening. And that really helped me to like get there. And then as far as dancing, I moved out of Austin and then a year later where my, all of my like dance family was, and I was in LA and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then I got a neck injury. And so the doctor was like, you know, all those things you like to do, like the, you know, explosive movement and dance, like that's over for now. Um, so you have, you've got to do rehab. And so for the next like 20 ish weeks, all you can do is walk really. And so I know myself and like, I quit high school track in the first 10 seconds because I hated distance running 
like they wanted me to sprint and throw. And I was like, sounds good. And the first day of track, they were like, all right, we start every practice with a two mile warm up. And I was like, I'll see ya. Like, this has been fun. I'm going to go home now. I'd rather shave my head with a cheese grater than run two miles after school every day. So I was like, I'm going to have to get some kind of goal or I'm never going to do this walking. And I found that 20 weeks from then was a marathon in Seattle where my best friend lives. And so I decided to do this marathon and that has kind of got me into um, endurance sports from dancing. And I've uh, currently am training for a full distance triathlon and iron distance triathlon. And once that's done, I may go back to dance or I may try something else. I'm, I still dance for fun, but like, this has given me an opportunity to explore like what it's like at a sport that I'm really bad at. Cause I've like, just like high school track, like I've only ever played sports or done activities that I was good at right away. It's like played basketball in fifth grade one time, never played again. Wasn't good at it don't see a reason to, to keep doing this. So, and as a fat athlete, it's been an interesting road because as a dancer, of course you get trolls and fat folks who are like, you're terrible. And I'm like, well, count the trophies. I have three national championships. I'm actually pretty good at this. But in terms of marathon, I am consistently last place in every race I'm in. And so it's like, yeah, I'm not fast and I don't care. Like this is my experience that I'm having. And so it's really, I think helped to round me out as an athlete and as somebody who does activism around this to have that experience. Yeah. And I, that can be so empowering and also like very humbling as an athlete, right? Because if you, I grew up as a swimmer and like playing every sport that I was good at at first, right? As soon as I tried something that I wasn't very good at, I'm thinking of like field hockey right now. I was like, this is dumb. I'm never doing this again. And I also blamed it on like, I don't want to wear a skirt while I'm playing a sport. Like that's so dumb. The boys can wear shorts and we have to wear a skirt. So I like got really mad about that like aspect of it. But anytime you are, and I think, you know, this can relate back to body acceptance and body neutrality too, right? It's like, nobody's good at this when they first start, especially when you've been conditioned to hate your body, really no matter what size you are, but especially if you're in a larger body, oh, you should be hating your body. You should be doing things to change your body and everything like that, right? So just reminding people that like, just like a sport that you've never played before, this is something entirely new that you have to practice over and over again in order to not even get good at it, get neutral at it, right? And I think the thing that you did of, you know, writing down all of the things that your body is doing for you. Like, hey, I'm blinking. Things are going well, right? I'm seeing things are going well. I'm breathing. Things are going well because those perspectives are going to look different for everybody, but there's always something that you can be grateful for, whether you're in an able body, a disabled body, if you're recovering from surgery like you are right now, like there's still amazing things that your body is doing. Like every second of the day, currently your cells are trying to repair your body so that you can go and do all these amazing things. So I think just reminding people that like there's no one track to body neutrality and body acceptance and however you get there, as long as you just keep going and keep trying, coming at it with a beginner's mind can be super helpful. Definitely. And I do always want to point out, like, I have a lot of privilege in terms of like being currently able-bodied, um, being currently neurotypical, uh, being currently like temporarily at least able-bodied. And, um, and so it's different for people who are living with chronic pain, who are living with, you know, chronic illness, who are living with different situations. And so one of the things I found from my neck injury, which it started at 2013 and I just at the end of April had surgery for it. So I hope this will end that period of chronic pain in theory. Um, and so what I figured out when it first happened, it was so severe that I couldn't lift my right arm. Like I would look at my arm and be like, lift. And my arm was like, nah. And I was like, what? Like, I had never had that kind of disconnect. I had sports injuries and stuff, but never like do this thing where my body's like, I don't think so really. Um, and I learned to conceptualize it as me and my body against a problem, rather me against my body. And that really helped me to like push through that. So just a, as a little tip for folks. And like I said, I, I only live for chronic pain for like seven, eight years, which is different than people who are doing it for a lifetime. But it's something that helped me a little bit. Something that I like about what you said there too is that I think part of it also kind of reinforces the idea that, you know, our bodies are our instruments, you know, thinking about, we had a conversation with Lindsay Kite recently um, and we were talking about how our bodies are instruments. And I think the listing it out um, in the way that you said, you know, breathing, blinking, creating, moving, whatever it is that you're able to do within the capacity of your body, right? 
are ways to showcase and show that you, you know, your body is um, not something that's on display that has to be changed and altered and, and maneuvered around. Now, granted, there's so much deeper than just that. You know, the size acceptance advocacy is so much deeper than just a personal experience. But, but in order to say um, for yourself and starting home, right, and working out. Um, can be really beneficial. And I love that idea of listing those things because I think it's a, a gentle reminder um, and sometimes a really impactful reminder that our bodies are so much more than something that other people get to to comment on or think about or say that need to be or we need to alter or change. Um, and something that you said recently um, was that it's a non-negotiable that there's no gr agreeing to di or disagreeing um, that we have the right to exist. Um, and I will not disagree about my humanity. And I think that's part of it. Part of that list is writing down your humanity, you know, and I, I'd love for you to share more about, um, about that work, about advocating for size acceptance. And it sounds like your listing was the start of that, you know, like almost like doing it for yourself first. Yeah, I definitely started on like a self path. And when I was doing that list and uh, getting to that place of appreciating my body at that time, I still thought, okay, but when I love my body any size, I'm going to figure out how to lose weight to be healthy. Right. I really believe like that was the path and uh, doing that literature view was sort of the end of that. And I, and really got me to a place of like fomenting a righteous rage because other than white supremacy, the idea that I could be thin if I wanted to and that it would make me healthier to do so have been sold to me more aggressively than anything else in my life. And here's this research. And then I come to find out, like, not only is this research, like, would have gotten me failed out of re freshman research methods, right? 70% of the people dropped out. 30% of the people lost five pounds in two years. Oh, this is an effective intervention. For what? I could lose five pounds right now with a loofah and a haircut. I don't need two years of food restriction to get that done. Like, what are we doing? And then I found out there's no study that shows that even the tiny fraction of people who successfully suppress their weight long-term have improved health outcomes from that, right? It's literally based on the idea that if we make fat people look like thin people, their health outcomes will be the same, which comes from a place of saying, well, if fat bodies experience a negative health outcome more than thin bodies, then the size of the body must be to blame, which ignores the fact that like studies have shown that stigma is associated with health issues, weight cycling or yo-yo dieting, like uh, Bacon and Aphromore in their paper found that that was responsive, that could be responsible for the entire excess mortality that we see in like the Ann Haynes and the Framingham study. Uh, and the fact that we have staggering inequalities to healthcare because not just practitioner bias, which is a huge issue, but literally research tools, best practices, training, durable medical equipment, all made for thin people. And so as I realized that, I started to really like get that kind of activist rage of like, this isn't okay and this can't stand. And we need to be talking about this because fat people are out there blaming ourselves. And this is what the diet industry has purposefully done, right? What they know for sure is that the biological reaction to people to intentional weight loss attempts is short-term weight loss and long-term weight gain, right? About 95% of people gain back their weight within two to five years, about to two thirds of those gain back more than they lost. And so what the diet industry has done is to credit for the first part of that biological response and then gotten people to blame themselves and blame others for the second part of the biological response and then go back to the diet company and just do it again sometimes for our whole lives and so I was like this is and I want to also be clear like these are two separate things so size acceptance is a civil rights movement it says fat people have the right to live without shame stigma bullying or oppression doesn't matter why we're fat doesn't matter what the quote unquote consequences of being fat might mean. Doesn't matter if we could or even want to become thin. We have the right to exist. The rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not size dependent, period. And it's as a civil rights movement, it's not like asking for a show of hands. It's not asking people to give us those rights. It's asking them to stop taking them away through an inappropriate use of power and privilege. And so it's not debatable. Like I was saying, like this isn't a show of hands things. You either agree with size acceptance or you're wrong. Like you can think whatever you want for your personal body, but on a general societal level, this is a civil rights issue. 
which is separate from health at every size, which I also talk about because fat people should have the right to pursue health without massive misinformation and staggering inequalities to access. But I want to always be clear. Those are two separate things. You don't have to practice any kind of like health and health by any definition that you're using, not an obligation, not a barometer of worthiness, not entirely within our control. Right. So I always want to be clear about those things. But yeah, so that was kind of, I got that rage going and, and really kind of started talking about those two tracks of things. Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for really delineating that for people, right? Because it's really not, it's like, you know, last year when Black Lives Matter finally became like a popular accepted movement. It's like, this is not, this is not a political issue. This is an equal rights humanitarian issue, right? So I do want to talk about this health piece more, right? Because this, the health piece has become very tied in with like moral obligation in our culture, right? Like, oh, if you are fat, if you are in a larger body, you should be doing something about it, right? Because, oh my God, how could you not, right? So you've also talked about a lot, this kind of like good fatty, bad fatty dichotomy, right? Your words, not mine. I don't want anyone to think, you know, that I made that up because it's amazing. So, and the, the thing that's really messed up about this, and I want you to go into both of those and like what that looks like, um, but it's, this dichotomy is really, as we see, determined by people who think they have the right to judge and place you into one of those categories. So could you talk about that a little bit more? Absolutely. And good fatty, bad fatty dichotomy, Not I did not originate that. I think, again, it's a Kate Harding phrase. I could be wrong about that, um, but that's who I had first learned it from. But yeah, so it's this idea that you'll hear people, well, there are two kinds of fat people. Like they're the ones who like, exercise and are quote unquote healthy and like I'm okay with them but then there are those fat people who are just like sedentary and lazy and only eat fast food and I'm not okay with them and the first thing that I noticed about that is that you could literally divide any group of people into those two categories there are two kinds of blonde people there are two kinds of Rotarians they're like this is not and so it becomes just a way to justify fat phobia and that's an important issue to understand. I And the thing about good fatty, bad fatty dichotomy is like I get a lot of good fatty privilege because I participate in fitness things. So my deal with fitness is always like nobody's obligated to participate in this and participating doesn't make you better than anybody else, right? Like I've done both. I can tell you for sure. Doing a marathon, watching a Netflix marathon, morally equivalent activities. Um, and if you go slow enough, both an option to take an entire Sunday. But uh, But everybody should be welcome to participate. So I want to break down barriers of access. I don't want to tell people that they have some obligation to participate in fitness or health behaviors in any way. But yeah, so it's, you know, you've got this uh, situation where people are looking for ways to justify fat phobia and they'll use like, oh, well, you're obviously not prioritizing your health, right? Which is ridiculous on its face. And I know that because there's a sport called skeleton in the Olympics and you go face first on an ice shoot 80 miles an hour on a sled. And this does not prioritize the health. And it's not like they're bringing like medication to underserved populations. They're just trying to like get to the end, jump up, wave a flag and win a medal. And you're allowed to do that. But like, let's be honest, the NFL is comprised of a bunch of dudes risking their short and long-term physical and mental health in the hope to score enough points to win jewelry. And we like, they get worshiped. Right. And so this idea that like, oh, well, if you're not prioritizing your health, then your health becomes my business is really just a thin veil for fat bigotry and fat phobia. And so I try to point that out. Like nobody has any obligation and health is a really amorphous concept. We act like it's something you can like throw a dart at and hit. But that's not accurate at all. It's going to be different for different people throughout stages of their lives, whether or not they are dealing with mental or physical health issues. Like there's all kinds of things that affect what is health for somebody, right? Like peanut butter, delicious protein filled snack for some instant death for others. There's no like healthy, unhealthy, like black and white line. And so just like, as we start to pick that apart, we see more and more like, oh, this isn't about my health. Like it never was. If you cared about my health, you'd care about uh, ending the stigma that I face. You'd care about making sure that I have, you know, a life experience that doesn't cause me constant stress and unhappiness. You would work on those things with me. You would ask me what would make me happier and healthier. You wouldn't tell me that I have to change my picture to fit your frame or you're going to mistreat me. That's not, you don't care about my health if that's your attitude. So, Yeah. We think about health as like such a linear thing, like this dart that we can get to, right? This like center dart. And if you think about it this way too, a lot of times we are only so much focused on our physical health. 
And when we think about it that way, it's really our appearance health, right? And that's a quote unquote appearance health, right? And I think we don't think about what's going on underneath and what's going on um, in our mental, our mental health and our spiritual health and all of the different aspects of, of what make us up of who we are. And I think a lot of times too, that's the part that I think can be really frustrating for me when people are like, oh, well, it's about my health. Well, your health is not a linear line. There's so many different pieces of that puzzle. And when you look at it that way, you're really limiting all the other things that you can doing. What, are, what thread are we pulling in the pursuit of physical health that's then impacting our emotional health, spiritual health, um, mental health, all the different things that, that can play such a big role. And I think too, like to that, I think also that makes it really difficult uh, is when we think about the we think of our physical health from like going to a physician, going to the doctor, doing all these things as just being just that piece. And a lot of times people just miss out on this really grand opportunity to think of themselves and as their bodies as a lot more than just that. And I think that um, when we, and we think of going to our physician as gospel, you know, and like what our doctor says is, Oh, well that's our physical health. So that's literally everything. And um, they miss so much. And, as someone in a, a larger body or um, identifying in a fat body, you go to that doctor and that that is not a safe place a lot of times. It directly impacts your mental and emotional health and therefore also your physical health at the same time. When you're constantly being told to ignore certain things or just lose weight and, um, and then everything else is going to fall into place. And I can't tell you how many times I've had clients and I know who've shared stories with me where I have to call their physician and tell them like, what's up? Like, what are you doing? You know, why are you ignoring these things? And you put that really greatly in an Instagram post yourself where you said, um, raise your hand if you've ever been told to eat less and exercise more from a healthcare provider that's never asked you how much you eat or how much you exercise. And I, I loved it because it puts so like obviously that the reason the provider is recommending that is based off of weight bias, like in 100%. Um, and also when you like when you think of that you know that in, in institutionalized fat phobia alarm bell starts going off in my mind like bing 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 like every time i have a client of mine who comes to me and starts talking about um, their experience with their doctor, like, oh, my doctor listened to me. They were talking to me. And then all of a sudden I'm like, wait for it, wait for it. Here it comes, here it comes. And then boom, maybe you should take metformin. And I'm like, why are we taking metformin if we have no blood markers for diabetes? Like, where's that coming from? And so I don't know, I'd love for you to talk about that even more because I think you hit it really well when you talked about the physical body and the, the health, like this um, this moralization of our physical health and how much we attach a size to that and how dangerous that is for, for anybody going to a doctor's office and, and how do you advocate for yourself in that way? Yeah, it's really frustrating because our healthcare system is really based on a deeply entrenched weight stigma. And doctors learned it at medical schools. And because these... Uh, journals publish these terrible studies, right? That should not make it past peer review. A study where 70% of people dropped out, they weren't accounted for or talked about. And the end, like you had to read, it, it sounded like everyone in the study lost weight. And like a lot of it until you like read in the tables and you find out it's only 30% and they've only lost five pounds in two years and they're still regaining. They've just stopped counting, right? These are things that shouldn't make it past peer review, but it does. And so doctors honestly think that they're doing the right thing which is frustrating to me. And the information is out there. I also want to point out that in 1992, the NIH uh, panel of experts admitted that almost whatever diet people tried, almost everyone gained back their weight. Then there were several studies in the interim that said the same thing. And then last year in 2020, a group of Canadian quote unquote obesity experts came to the same conclusion. So this isn't new information. This isn't unknown information, but what they did, they didn't say, so stop prescribing diets. They said, well, so try more extreme things, right? Um, surgically mutilate people's digestive systems to put them into a disease state to force behaviors that mimic an eating disorder. That's now a reasonable thing to do to fat people. Even though we have tons of studies, Matheson et al., Way et al., the Cooper Institute Longitudinal Studies, Barry et al., that show that behaviors are a better predictor of future health than body size, right? And we're talking about something that... 
and or fails almost all the time and or risks our lives and quality of life in a way that thin people are not asked, right? Thin person with high blood sugar, perhaps metformin, medical interventions that are proven to lower blood sugar, fat person with high blood sugar, stomach amputation that risks their life and their quality of life. And so it's medicine and especially the field of quote unquote obesity medicine is based on the idea that fat bodies are less valuable and more riskable than thin bodies and that people don't really deserve evidence-based medicine unless or until they become thin. And so that's a lot of my work. And I've been studying this ever since I did that literature review. So like 10, 11, more than a decade. And so I am just a joy to have as a patient. Let me tell you, doctors love me uh, because I also just like, I'm going to say something. So if they prescribe weight loss, I'm going to say, I, you know, can you give me one study where even the majority of people succeeded at the kind of weight loss you want? Cause like, if you want me to lose five pounds in two years, like I could probably do that, but that's not what you're saying you want. Like at this rate, I'll be at my quote unquote goal rate in like 2097. Right. So is that really what we're saying? Um, and you know, and I will push them on that. And it's hard because they know so much more than I do about so much in terms of medicine, but I know more than they do about this. I've been studying this for as long as it took them to become a doctor. And so that's a difficult situation. Um, and a lot of doctors, like I speak to, to whole conferences of physicians and doctors often have a hard time hearing something from someone who's not a doctor. So my, the first question I always get is, well, where did you go to medical school? And my answer is, well, I didn't, if I did, I'd probably be making the same mistakes that you are. Like I had to go outside of that system to get this information and bring it to you. Um, but yeah, so in terms of like dealing with that phobia at the doctor's office, I have a whole like uh, workshop about this, but in general, I find the kind of magic question is, what would you do for a thin person with this health issue? And let's try that. And sometimes there's like this combo and always preface this lying to your doctor, dangerous thing, shouldn't have to do it. But, you know, to be like, you know what, I'm absolutely going to try this diet that you gave me, even though I'm absolutely not going to try this diet that you gave me. But like in the meantime, like if I was thin and came in with the same health issue, what would you prescribe? Because there's this huge, it's a, it's malpractice basically to say, if a thin person comes in with this health issue, we're going to give them an intervention right away. But if a fat person comes in, we're going to give them this like amorphous prescription to lose weight and then leave their condition untreated for an indeterminate amount of time. Because even if we were able to succeed at weight loss, like it's going to take time. So we're just living with an untreated condition to see if changing how we look changes our health condition. Where a thin person would have had treatment from day one, like that's just inequality that's that's not justifiable by evidence at all at all and then we wonder and then we wonder why there's quote-unquote higher mortality rate it's like oh perhaps it's because you haven't been treating my illnesses throughout this entire time and you have to think too like going back to what you said about the research and how like oh i love that question well show me the research it i think the fact that it's been published at all given the outcomes that it has and how clearly the research shows that it's not effective shows the institutionalized fat phobia, right? Because built into that, into the fact that it was published is proving the fact, well, we, we carry this belief that maybe those participants just didn't try hard enough. It can't, it can't be because the, the, the process was wrong. It has to be on the participant's fault, you know? And I think that in of itself just shows how deeply it becomes ingrained in institutionalized um, um, fat phobia in the medical inst um, system throughout. And then an interesting thing about that too, Christina, when you were talking about it, I was thinking like, you know, all of these um, stereotypes and assumptions that then become like beliefs that people have about people in larger bodies. It's like, oh, they must be lazy. They must not have enough willpower when really the tools that you're giving them to do to do the things that are firstly unrealistic, the tools themselves don't work. And so now we're blaming the people for the failure of the tool and then the people become failures themselves. And then the people who are thin are saying, oh, those people who couldn't embody these practices are now lazy because the tool didn't work for them. And this whole like re amalgus like research process then turns into the assumption of like, 
oh, people in larger bodies are just like, they don't care about their health and they're not doing anything about it and they're lazy and they have no willpower when really like they're facing discrimination at every point in the whole world, but especially when you're going into the medical system. And then, I mean, how many conversations have we had with people and clients and everything that dread going to the doctor? And we haven't even talked about like one immediate physical ramification of stress is your blood pressure goes up, right? How many people in larger bodies have been put on high blood pressure medication because, and we don't know this because there's no research on it, of white coat syndrome, which for anybody who doesn't know is when you go into the doctor's office and you're really stressed out, or maybe you've just walked up a flight of stairs and you've barely gotten to sit down and then they immediately take your blood pressure, which has even happened to me. And they're like, oh, you're higher than normal. Let's then like, what's going on? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I just was really stressed out because I couldn't find a parking spot and then I had to pay for this and you know, whatever. And I'm not even in a larger body, right? So it's like, they don't assume that about me but they assume that about somebody else, even though maybe that person was just in the same stressful situation that I was in, you know? And then that directly can lead to medications and then perpetuating that stigma and assumption, oh, you're you're in a larger body, you must be unhealthy. You must have high blood pressure, which is going to cause all of these long-term mortality rates. Yeah. Blood pressure is a great example because not only is all of that true, right? And not only are fat people tending to be more stressed at the doctor because they've experienced previous mistreatment. So they know what they're like signing up for. And this, by the way, the privilege in, in fat community is relative. So I have more privilege than someone who weighs less than me, but less privilege than someone who weighs more than me. So people at the high weight, highest weights are experiencing the most discrimination, both in bias and systemically. But like another issue with blood pressure is blood pressure cuffs. And they have to be the right size. If you use a too small cuff, you'll get a too high reading. And there are literally tolerances. There are like number of centimeters of your arm, blood pressure cuff that you should be using. But way too many medical professionals think that if you can get the cuff around the arm, that's good enough. And so I happen to know, like I've done the research and I'll be like, oh, no, that is not the right cuff for me. It's too small. And they'll say, well, let's just try it anyway. No. Like if you don't have the proper equipment, please write. We did not have the proper equipment. We failed to provide proper equipment to take blood pressure. Patient refused. Right. But no, we're not going to just give it. It's not, it's not, we're not trying a sport out. We're not trying like, maybe you'll like broccoli, take a bite. We're saying like, this is my blood pressure. And it's the same with weigh-in. Like there's this new thing now because they've, there's a code where you can get credit for like weight loss counseling, but you have to have a BMI calculated. And so people who have been refusing weigh in forever um, are now being asked, well, you know, do you mind if I guess? And the first time that happened to me, I was so shocked. I just was like, this is not the county fair. We will not be guessing my weight. Like I was so, (laughs) but like, this is a thing now. And so as I thought about it more, I was like, wait, like what you just told me is this isn't an important number. Like what other numbers that are supposed to be medically relevant are we guessing at today? We'll be guessing at my temperature. We'll be guessing at my blood pressure. Like what else are we guessing at? Either it's an important medical number or you can take your best guess at it, but these are not the same, right? So yeah, it's a really good example of how, you know, it's at every level, practitioner bias, equipment isn't correct. Sometimes they don't even have like, like, so they'll be like, oh, well, you've sized out of those. So we're just going to use a thigh cuff, like sort of randomly. We don't have any tolerances for that. Or we're going to try to take it on your forearm with a regular adult cuff. And we don't really know, but like, we'll get some number. And so at that point, I'm like, why are we doing this? And I do wonder how many fat people have been medicated and then suffered the side effects of that uh, blood pressure medication. And what they were was just like you said, stressed out or even, you know, if even without white coat syndrome, like literally like running up the stairs and they don't give you time. There are, there are, uh, protocols for taking a proper blood pressure. You're supposed to be completely calm, feet flat on the floor, arm at heart level. There's a lot. You're not supposed to talk to somebody while they're getting blood pressure. And all of these things can inch it up. So anyway, I'll get off this particular soapbox, but it's a really good example of how uh, all of those different types of uh, inequality come together. Oh man. I was thinking about um, a a personal experience that I had. I've always had, you know, you know, perfect, I guess, like perfect quote unquote, um, blood pressure. And then one time it was, it was high. And my, my, the nurse who was doing it turned to me and she goes, Ooh, let's take a minute and we're going to run that again. And I think about how many people that doesn't happen to, 
right? Like to take a minute and say, oh, let's do it again. This is not in line with what you've always been trending. So like, let's, you know, it's not. So to me, like that in and of itself shows something. And also, I don't think I've ever had my blood pressure taken when my feet were flat on the ground, ever. Like, I don't think that's ever happened to me. The protocols are not followed for most people. It's really surprising to me because it's not a hard thing to get right. No, not at all. Like how difficult. It's not difficult. There's a chair there. Why am I sitting in the chair instead of on this on the thing? And I think even when I was pregnant, that never happened. Well, Christina, do you remember so one of our professors in grad school who was our like advanced lab assessment um clinical skills and sports nutrition professor, Oscar, he tells a story one time where he's like a straight-sized person, right? And he's extremely smart, has a PhD, multiple degrees, doctorate, like many different things in many different areas of like nutrition, biology, psychology, everything. So one time he was being a dummy, he was telling us, and he was trying to carry this like huge safe or dresser or something up a flight of stairs and it ended up falling on his foot. So he drove himself to the emergency room and they took his blood pressure and they're like, ooh, your blood pressure's a little high. Like maybe we want to think about putting you on something. And he was like, are you effing kidding me? Like, of course my blood pressure is high. I just dropped a whole like 200 pound thing on my foot. I had to drive myself to the emergency room. I'm stressed as hell. What are you talking about? And it was so funny to just hear that kind of story of like how absurd it is that like if they I mean of course his blood pressure was going to be high like this all of these situations that are leading to you come to the hospital and you're like oh I just dropped a 250 pound thing on my foot it's probably broken I had to drive myself here you know not including everything else that's going on there oh oh um we might want to think about putting you on blood pressure medication or you might want to think about fixing my broken foot and then maybe when I'm calm, you can retake. It's just like the first thing they always go to is like, oh, let's go to medication. And it's like, maybe, maybe let's not. Maybe let's read the room a little bit. Like, are there other reasons that this thing might be happening? Yeah, it's super frustrating. And and just like the uh, incredibly poor practice of medicine. I think also too that... Um to me kind of showcases too that it's just not even on their radar. It's not on their radar to think about how someone might be feeling when walking into the physician's office and how each person might be having a completely different experience or coming back. Um, that's happened before. I've, I can't tell you how many um, conversations I've had with clients before about going to their doctor when their doctor has been pushing weight loss on them and being so scared about getting their numbers down and then going in there and, and then saying like, oh my gosh, I'm really worried that my numbers are going to be high. And I have to remind them your numbers might be high because of how anxious we are. Our stress directly impacts all of those things. I want to come back. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about what happened, you know, and we're going to, we're going to, you know, um, break this all down to make sure that you're getting the support or doing what you need. Here are some practices and tools that you can use when going into the doctor's office that can make it feel safer, that can make you feel more relaxed, more comfortable so that you can get a correct reading. Um, and so you can know, you know, what's actually going on. But yet there's so many layers to this. And I just, I've really loved having you on, Reagan, and talking about it. And I'd love to to list out every piece of research that you've mentioned throughout this whole <laughs> conversation because it's so rare that we have someone who's who's research based right and who's obviously an expert in this field and who can rattle off all the studies in this way which is so refreshing and so much fun and so um i was thinking too as we kind of like wrap up um our conversation is What's a message that you really want all the listeners of this podcast to hear and to take away from this conversation and the work that you do and how you want them to bring that home for themselves? I think, first of all, I can shortcut the research for you. I worked with um, Dr. Louise Metz and Tiana Dodson to create a website called HayesHealthSheets.com, and it gives diagnosis-specific sheets. So, like, if you have gotten a diagnosis, it gives weight-neutral care for that diagnosis and explains how fat phobia can come into play. And then it has a research bank, so you can find the research there. So. I can shortcut that for you. Um, and I also want to point out, while I know the research and I talk about it, like it's okay to put the burden of proof on the person prescribing weight loss to you. Because I tend to be like, what about this? And what about this? And like throughout studies, but it can also be just as or more effective to be like, what do you have? Like, you're telling me I should do this. I'm going to need to see a study that suggests that it will work. 
Um, so in general, my the message I want people to take away is that um, oppression, shame, stigma, bullying uh, is not our fault, even though it becomes our problem. So when we choose how to deal with that, like any choice we make is valid as a person dealing with oppression. But what the most important thing is like, this should not be happening. We shouldn't have to gear up and have a skill set to go to a doctor. That shouldn't be a reality. It is. And it's worse like for those who are fatter and for those who live at the intersections of marginalization. So fat black people, fat trans people, fat disabled people, et cetera. There's, uh, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw intersectionality style additional oppression there but like this should not be happening to us and just continuing to center that and to turn negative feelings outward right foment that righteous rage if that works for you or an eye roll or whatever helps you to be like this is not my fault this is simply becoming my problem amazing well thank you so so much for coming on today before we let you go please do not aside from the Hayes health sheets, which kind of tongue twister there. But besides that, and all of the things that you've mentioned, tell everybody all of the places that they can find you. Sure. So the easiest thing to do is start at danceswithfat.org. That's my blog. And from there, you can find all of my social media. I do a monthly online workshop and then I have a like library of workshops. So like, for example, you can get that dealing with fat phobia at the doctor's office on video anytime. Um, and that's sort of my like base of operations and everything can be found from there. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. This was amazing. I've said amazing seven times. (laughs) (laughs) It is amazing. I like it. No, thank you for having me. Thank you for the work that you're both doing. It's so critical and I'm really grateful for what you do. And I'm grateful to get to be a little part of that. So thank you. We're happy you're here. Thank you. Hey friend, hope you loved today's episode. Just as a reminder, if you're interested in diving deeper into these topics and working on your own body image, check out the body image audit at bit.ly forward slash the body image audit. Hey friends, it's Christina. Thanks for listening to the Whole Party Eating Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with your family and friends. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you can, leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This really helps spread the word so more people can find the show and learn how to break out of diet culture, the body image spiral, and find a more peaceful relationship with food in their bodies using wholehearted eating. If you're interested in learning how we can work with me or Dana for one-on-one nutrition counseling, or you want to check out one of our self-paced courses, head over to wholeheartedeating.com. See you next week.